This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. It has been often said that America fails to produce public intellectuals, that there is a gap between the world of academia and the world of Ivy League and the urgent questions of our time. Some have even talked about the tradition of anti-intellectualism in America. Professor Richard Falk is a perfect example of a public intellectual, known around the world for his impeccable scholarship, his unfailing commitment to lofty values of peace and equality, and his relentless effort to make ours a more peaceful, equitable, and just society. He's not averse to developing and defending ideas that defy the shibboleths of the day and received opinions. He is easily uh, one of the most accomplished scholars and public intellectuals America has produced in the last half of the century. For me, it is truly a great honor and a great privilege that he accepted our invitation and came uh, to Stanford. We were helped in this, uh, trying to make this whole thing work because his Professor Falk is so busy. Uh, Prince Hesham of uh, Morocco was very uh, graceful in helping us trying to uh, convince Professor Falk to come to Stanford. So we uh, first and foremost owe Professor Falk a word of gratitude for taking time out of his very, very busy schedule. Um, and uh, welcome. Uh, thank you very much for those uh, very generous words. I was, uh, I've learned over the years that an introduction is to be valued by the extent to which it exaggerates one's qualifications. And uh, uh, Dr. Milani's introduction was very, uh, very superb by those standards. Um, and I also, I think, owe him, uh, and maybe we all owe him, a debt of gratitude for scheduling my talk to coincide with the State of the Union address <laughs> this evening. Uh, I, I think, um, I, I don't know that I'll have much to say that of, is of value, but I suspect I can compete reasonably well with our uh, elected leader. But that remains to be seen, of course. Uh, my uh, interest in uh, Iran and the U.S. relationship to Iran uh, has uh, rather deep personal roots that I thought I'd say a few words about just as a kind of background uh, for uh, trying to uh, assess the current state of U.S.-Iran relations and particularly to put them into a uh, context that relates the relationship uh, to a recurring theme of uh, world order and particularly the relationship between 
the United States and the region that is not only Iran but uh, the region as a whole. And in many ways what I want to say has to do with the importance of um, moving toward a constructive regional perspective on the future of U.S.-Iran relations uh, and moving away from what I think has been a mutually very destructive uh, pattern of relationships that uh, has uh, relied upon a very uh, uh, futile sense of uh, regional security, regional well-being for the two, these two political actors. Uh, my own interest in Iran goes back to the period just after the end of the Vietnam War when I had the insight which was encouraged by some Iranian students that I had when I was teaching at Princeton uh, uh, at that time, uh, which was that the combination of the uh, large American military presence in Iran in the 1970s, in the uh, mid-1970s, and a political leadership that was uh, repressive toward its uh, citizenry was likely to be the next site of trouble for uh, American foreign policy. And so I uh, was encouraged to organize, or I was the, became the chair of a small committee that uh, was concerned about uh, U.S. involvement in Iran. Uh, was formed about 1975, around that time. And because there was so little interest in the United States, in Iran, then, this small committee that had virtually no resources had a high visibility and organized some important events at Princeton, including a talk by Dr. Yazdi, who uh, was then a, a doctor in Houston, Texas, I believe. and. Uh, uh, and Princeton actually had, because of this, uh, probably the most uh, interesting discussions of Iran in the lead-up to the revolution in uh, 1976 through 78. Uh, and as a result of this um, role, I had been invited by uh, Mehdi Barzagan to come and visit Iran and meet the new political leadership of the country as it was emerging out of this revolutionary process. And uh, uh, I went to Iran at that time uh, accompanied by two other people and we did have the opportunity to meet the uh, new leaders and some of the old leaders including uh, Bakhtiar who was the Prime Minister and, but also uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in a, on his last day in Paris. It was the day before he left for Iran. And it was um, uh, unclear then uh, as to uh, what would be the future of U.S.-Iran relations. There was a great reluctance on the part of the uh, American 
president at the time, Jimmy Carter, and his national security advisor, who was uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, to accept the downfall of the Shah. And uh, there was an attempt, actually, while I was in, in Iran, to have the deputy commander of NATO organize a military coup uh, that would uh, restore effective authority uh, to the displaced regime. And what, what this um, experience uh, that I had uh, conveyed to me was this uh, interplay between these two uh, political actors. Iran having justifiable suspicion about the motivation and uh, intentions of the United States that were inscribed in the political consciousness of Iran essentially by the role that the CIA played in the 1953 uh, coup that overthrew uh, the elected democratic uh, government of uh, Mossadegh and uh, was was provocative to the United States primarily because he moved to nationalize British-owned oil. That was the event that really uh, aroused uh, the f uh, European and North American uh, hostility. It was in the in a Cold War context, so it was not only the uh, nationalization of oil, but the feeling that this would move Iran toward the left and toward uh, the Soviet Union. And so the CIA coup or the CIA um, uh, role in uh, restoring the Shah to uh, power. Uh, was both, I think, a, an expression of Cold War uh, politics and uh, what one might call economic imperialism. And the restructuring of the oil industry after the coup shifted the ownership uh, to um, the large American oil companies away from the British. It, it rescinded the nationalization of oil. And so these, I think, elements uh, come together in a pattern that on the uh, Iranian side represents an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily deep suspicion about foreign intervention in their internal affairs and a repeated struggle to find uh, the path to effective national independence and to, in that sense, create the foundations for a role beyond Iran itself that uh, corresponds to some, in some sense with the nostalgia that Iranians or many Iranians feel for the lost glories of the Persian Empire and the Persian past. So there is that kind of uh, 
larger role. And then there's the, uh, on the, the U.S. side is this uh, confused uh, effort to um, control the post-colonial reality without appearing to be a colonial power, uh, without trying to restore uh, colonial rule. So that always that has created a puzzle. How do you do that? How do you uh, how do you establish the equivalent control that was exercised uh, by Britain and, and Russia, particularly in Iran, uh, during the colonial period? How is that done? And so one of the explanations for the covertness of the 1953 initiatives was to uh, hide the uh, real uh, geopolitical motivations uh, and to uh, uh, pretend to be uh, not really an actor that was transforming uh, the Iranian uh, reality and certainly not opposing a constitutional democratic uh, government in the country and not um, not ever acknowledging uh, that it was interested in uh, uh, the control of the oil uh, industry within uh, Iran. Uh, and and it, it seems to me that that background has played out uh, through these uh, several decades and that one way of understanding the revolution of 1978 and 79 is as a second attempt if, to establish effective national independence to uh, achieve uh, liberation from the uh, structures that had uh, existed uh, during the colonial era. In other words, uh, what the Iranian Revolution was in part uh, uh, seeking to achieve and why it mobilized such strong popular support initially uh, was that it pre presented a revolutionary nationalist uh, project that uh, appeared to uh, unite the, a large spectrum of Iranian society against an established order that was that had continued to subjugate itself to outside geopolitical forces. In other words, the uh, uh, part of the perception of uh, the Shah was that he was uh, much too subordinated uh, to international capital on the one side and to uh, U.S. strategic priorities on the other side. Henry Kissinger, in his memoirs, uh, referred to the Shah in these words, and I quote, I think, ex ex exactly, uh, as he called uh, the Shah the rarest of things, an unconditional ally. And what he meant by that was that the Shah was doing things for the United States 
uh, that really no other government in the region was willing to do. He was uh, uh, supplying Israel with uh, its oil uh, requirements and supporting them politically. He was even supplying South Africa with oil at a time when it was very awkward for uh, the United States itself uh, to do anything uh, that looked as though it was helping apartheid South Africa. And, and then, of course, uh, Iran was an enormously important uh, strategic uh, site for uh, surveillance of uh, Central Asia and the Soviet Union in, in this period and was considered crucial to uh, uh, Cold War uh, uh, activity. Uh, so that um, in, this, in this period, I think, there was the, this sense on the American side that Iran under the Shah was a perfect strategic partner. And, and it was, in a sense, uh, what we've experienced in uh, recent years is an attempt throughout the region to bring back that kind of political relationship between the United States, in other words, to restore a post-colonial imperial geopolitics uh, in the region, uh, starting with uh, Iran. Uh, there were many um, expressions of misunderstanding that pervade this uh, evolution of the relationship. Uh, one, one expression of this misunderstanding was at the time of the Iranian Revolution, uh, the U.S. Embassy had 26 scenarios of threat to the security and stability of the Shah's regime. Not one of them emphasized the role of Islam or the Islamic leadership. They were all focused on uh, issue on. Uh, dangers to stability coming from the left, coming from Marxist circles. And as is well known, many of the leaders of the uh, Islamic uh, uh, movement, political movement, uh, including people like Dr. Yazdi and uh, Gopsadeh and others who were uh, in the United States and, and in Europe, were uh, subsidized by the, by the U.S. government because they were seen as a political off, uh, a way of politically balancing the threat posed, the real threat that was thought to be posed to uh, what the United States wanted to have in Iran, that the real threat was the threat from Marxism and from the left and from Soviet, uh, potential Soviet uh, increase in influence, uh, so that the uh, uh, the uh, efforts in this period uh, were based on this um, unrealistic uh, sense that one could uh, continue in the post-colonial period this kind of uh, unequal structure of relationships. And, and that seems to me to be the uh, 
most fundamentally persisting themes, and it's not just uh, a matter of uh, particular leadership in this country, it's a bipartisan uh, understanding of what is appropriate in this U.S.-Iran relationship. And what I'm really trying to argue and suggest is an unwillingness by the United States to accept a transition to real national independence uh, by the countries in the region and a, an effort to sustain, in effect, uh, a unequal set of relationships in this post-colonial uh, period and to do it not by reestablishing formal control but by uh, through a combination of uh, international uh, capital and uh, uh, through uh, political and strategic uh, military uh, relationships. And the, uh, this uh, expect, set of expectations got, went, ran very deep, I think, even in most liberal of American uh, leaders, like Jimmy Carter, for instance, when he spent New Year's Eve uh, with the uh, Shah in Tehran, I think it was in uh, 1978, actually, January 78, he made this famous toast uh, that uh, to the Shah, calling him an island of stability surrounded by the love of his people. That was, those were the, the exact words. And this was just as the Iranian Revolution was unfolding and was often quoted that uh, to me uh, when I was there. Also, uh, uh, Carter uh, called uh, the Shah to commend him for using force against uh, unarmed demonstrators uh, after the Jale Square uh, demonstrations, which was one of the high points of the um, uh, movement against uh, the Shah, and lots of people were killed in that incident. So it was, there, there, there is all this background of suspicion which has, which rests on real intervention, real intervention in the internal political life and the internal economic reality of Iran. And it's often referred to now in the uh, present discussions as evidence that uh, Iranians are paranoid, you know, that, that, that they... Uh, uh, take an irrationally hostile and suspicious view of uh, American intentions. Whereas if they would, and the implication is, if they would act normally, they would realize that there was uh, no threat to their uh, national independence and uh, political future. Uh, so it's against that background, I think, that the uh, developments of the last several years in the during the uh, Bush presidency uh, need to be uh, understood as a acceler or as an intensification of this policy, uh, basically a policy of hostile containment that had existed after the uh, Iranian Revolution, and a shift from hostile to containment to uh, more or less overt 
confrontation. And that, that important uh, transition because it brings the possibility of uh, military uh, force uh, to the surface of the relationship in a way that it hadn't been really previously. And I think there are four factors that are worth uh, noting in this uh, um, acceleration of the uh, policies of the United States. Uh, unlike earlier uh, American uh, presidents in the period since uh, 1953, really, but certainly since the Iranian Revolution, uh, the people surrounding uh, Bush and Cheney were very convinced that the future of world politics would be settled in the Middle East. In other words, the Middle East became the fulcrum of world politics in a way that had never been before, where it was thought to be Europe or secondarily possibly uh, Asia. So this centrality of the Middle East and who controlled the Middle East would control the future was a very fundamental uh, belief of this uh, new leadership. And that really involved a shift and it is explained by, I think, a combination of factors connected with oil, Islam, and Israel, uh, which uh, I can ex uh, discuss in, when we uh, have uh, some questions afterwards. The second factor I think that's really important here uh, is that that this the Bush foreign policy felt that it could only achieve this control in the region if it was willing to use military force. And it was very critical of the Clinton presidency because it was much too timid in its uh, attitude toward uh, the use of force in order to achieve its objectives, especially in the region, and especially in relation to Iraq and Iran. Uh, and the um, ideological device for um, disguising this new militarism in American foreign policy uh, was to discuss the promotion of democracy, uh, the, which was to serve as a kind of legitimating uh, cover for the, uh, uh, the, a policy that was uh, quite confrontational in its uh, language and uh, goals and intentions. And these, these two aspects uh, of the uh, Bush approach to the region predated the 9-11 attacks. But after the 9-11 attacks, uh, what made them a, they became not just an ideological perspective, they became a political project and a political project that enjoyed bipartisan support initially, that is support of both political parties, and were wrapped around 
a, an effective counter-terrorist strategy. In other words, the effort to restructure the region in a manner that um, satisfied these uh, goals that uh, the Bush presidency had was uh, put, first of all, in security terms as a security imperative. And the Iraq war was the first expression of that security imperative, but it was a regional vision. It was not just an Iraq vision. It was thought that once Iraq uh, was uh, experienced this regime-changing uh, uh, diplomacy, the other countries, including Iran, would be much easier to uh, influence in, the, in a uh, similar direction. Uh, but it also, there was a th another element of this um, uh, posture, and that was to give the uh, American policy not a, a, a realist uh, outlook, but to give it a highly moralizing aspect. And the uh, recourse to the language of axis of evil in 2002, actually in the State of the Union speech in 2002, was a dramatic uh, uh, recourse to uh, morality as a foundation of uh, American geopolitics the, and the identification of these three countries with Ir Iran being seen as the uh, uh, most important of these three countries. Uh, and the issue that was uh, wrapped around this uh, projection of foreign governments as evil was the, the idea that they potentially could acquire uh, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction, and so they were uh, not only evil, but in a post-9-11 world, they were extremely dangerous and, in effect, could not be tolerated. See, that, and that's the, the real impact of 9-11 on the way in which uh, the uh, attitude toward uh, Iran changed. And, of course, this was later on reinforced by the emergence of Ahmadinejad as the Iranian president who uh, had recourse to highly inflammatory language, as you know. And that seemed to uh, create a foundation for this kind of aggressive policy, uh, which was articulated in terms of preemptive war and uh, not waiting for the threat to become so uh, serious uh, that it would uh, could could initiate uh, real uh, loss and damage, so that one needed to anticipate the threat, anticipatory self-defense, and again, Iraq was the testing ground for this. Uh, approach to security, which was 
in a sense, in violation of the UN Charter and of international law, but seem to correspond with the new, new post-9-11 uh, international uh, morality of uh, not waiting to be attacked, but attacking before one could be attacked. And then there was a further final element in this Bush approach, and that was that a recognition that real stability for the region depended on bringing the Israel-Palestine conflict to a close. But the twist here was that the way, that the road to peace, as it was put, uh, was through Baghdad and Tehran. The road to peace between Israel and Palestine was through Baghdad and Tehran, uh, not through Washington and Tel Aviv. See, and that was a, uh, an effort to say, in effect, if we can get the kind of compliant governments in these key countries, uh, then the Palestinians will have no base of support in the region and will have to, in effect, surrender and accept whatever Israel offers them. And it was uh, based, I think, on an illusion that there was that a sufficient linkage between uh, the governments in uh, Baghdad and Tehran and the Palestinian struggle. Uh, so that all of this, it seems to me, uh, reproduced in a new form the same policies uh, that led in 1953 to the covert intervention in Iran and um, led to a very uh, unproductive uh, response uh, to the uh, uh, Khomeini-led uh, revolution in 1979. And uh, I th it's, it is my view, which of course there's no way of establishing, uh, that um, the U.S.-Iran relation could have been normalized in the period after the revolution, uh, after Khomeini, uh, Khomeini didn't uh, immediately uh, take over the control of the government, and it's not clear uh, what exactly led to the shift from secular to uh, religious leadership in Iran. But but there was a time, I think, that the uh, w with a more constructive response that would have given up that old relationship based on control and inequality where one might have normalized uh, the relationship in a way that would have moderated the uh, revolutionary militancy of the Iranian uh, 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 leadership. Uh, and But there was a variety of provocations that were uh, partly deliberate and partly uh, uh, maybe uh, unthinking, the most dramatic of which was the admission of the Shah for uh, medical treatment uh, to the United States after the revolution in a situation in which it was anticipated that this would create a big uh, reaction in Iran because again there would be this sense 
that this was part of a, uh, a an effort to restore the Shah to political leadership in the country, that it was that the medical uh, uh, reason was just a pretext. Uh, and of course, the Iranian reaction was the uh, seizure of the embassy and the holding of hostages for 444 days, which inflamed, of course, the uh, American public perception of Iran and the interaction between these uh, two countries. So I think that background of suspicion and intervention and uh, what the po what was how do you create uh, positive relations in a post-colonial world? You know, I think there was a failure to to uh, uh, to address that issue in a constructive and creative way. Now, in the, in the pre present period, I think there is a um, new a kind of new thinking that's sort of emerging that suggests uh, a different way. There's a, first of all, there's a sense that uh, the neoconservative approach to the region during the Bush presidency has been a failure and that other things uh, need to be uh, explored and that uh, the effort at nonproliferation, uh, con the control of nonproliferation is also uh, not very successful. In a very good book uh, called Confronting uh, Iran by uh, a, a, a specialist, Ali Ansari, he writes, uh, the Iranian question facing the United States in the 21st century is that of the birth of the modern Iranian state, its reemergence as a regional power, and its successful and managed integration into the international community. See, and I think, I think that uh, uh, recognition is a is the basis of uh, a a new start, a new a new way of approaching the issue. And what's encouraging is you find both in the current issues of foreign affairs and foreign policy. Uh, both very influential mainstream American journals, uh, writing that goes along the same line. There's a piece by uh, Vali Nasser and Ray Tarke uh, that challenge the uh, uh, Bush approach to stability in the region. Uh, and they uh, characterize Iran in the following language, and I quote, Iran is not in fact seeking to create disorder uh, to fulfill some scriptural promise, nor is it an expansionist power with unquenchable uh, ambitions. Not unlike Russia and China, Iran is a growing power seeking to become a pivotal state in its region. And in uh, current history, uh, Saman Vakil writes, for now it is clear that Washington's unrelenting pressure is only obstructing prospects for Iranian reform while increasing Iran's influence in the region. The leadership of the Islamic Republic could not be more pleased. In other words, the, uh, the assessment is that not only has the 
uh, confrontational policy failed to achieve its goals, it's actually had the reverse effect, both internally to Iran by uh, creating this uh, nationalist feeling of being under threat, and uh, regionally by uh, making the um, whole climate of opinion uh, question uh, the American presence, the legitimacy of American uh, foreign policy, and promoting a, uh, a new wave of uh, radical populist uh, nationalism. Uh, so that um, uh, these developments, I think, are important and, from my perspective, encouraging. And the most important of all, in a way, is the assessment of the national uh, national intelligence estimate, the NI, so-called NIE report of December, which concluded that Iran had abandoned its nuclear weapons program. Uh, and this a report came from the most authoritative intelligence sources in the United States government. Uh, the, it's the accumulated, con, it's the consensus among the various intelligence gathering uh, institutions within the U.S. government. And for, the, for, for it to take this strong position in obvious uh, disagreement with what uh, uh, the Bush-Cheney leadership has been saying is a dramatic move which was perceived as, as such in Europe and uh, elsewhere and um, really should have been welcomed as a way of uh, de-escalating the tension and uh, confrontational relationship. But instead, as you all probably know, uh, the uh, leaders of... Um, uh, the Bush administration, have reiterated their sense of the gravity of the uh, Iranian threat and essentially ignored and discredited their own intelligence conclusions. You know, it's a, it's a rather uh, remarkable uh, uh, move in a sense and it suggests a great fragility in the uh, relationship between the two countries that, that is still, in my view, very dangerous and could uh, easily produce in the next year, in the last months of the Bush presidency, uh, some outbreak of uh, real violence. There was an incident in the Persian Gulf just 10 days ago. Uh, and again, it's very provocative to keep three aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf that have no other role than uh, a potential attack on Iran. They, they're not defensive. Uh, it's not a defensive presence. It's a very aggressive posture. And it's coupled with this increasing uh, appropriation uh, by uh, Congress of the democracy promotion program, which is really a, a, a cosmetic way of describing regime change uh, for Iran, um, some over $100 million being devoted to this. It's well known that there are special forces operating in Iran. 
sanctions are being pushed so that instead of trying to find a new path there's an effort to uh, sustain this tension and hostility and push toward a, a, uh, a confrontation that could uh, easily occur. Let me, in bringing these remarks to a, a conclusion, suggest that there is really a uh, moderate alternative approach uh, that would... Um, have much better prospects, in my view, of achieving uh, regional uh, stability and uh, security, and at the same time would help the reformist elements in Iran itself have more of a chance to challenge uh, a very repressive uh, governing process that exists in Iran. And I think the first step would be to uh, seek to uh, uh, gather the countries of the region to uh, recognize the importance of regional security in a non-aggression pact among the uh, countries that compose the region. Uh, and that's certainly a preferred alternative to this uh, prospect of a Sunni-Shia uh, uh, regional war, which is sort of in the back drop of the kind of diplomacy uh, that the U.S. has been promoting in recently. Uh, and from, a, from the basis of a non-aggression pact, I think a second uh, stage of this uh, demilitarizing of the uh, relationship would be uh, the disarmament of uh, long-range uh, missile uh, delivery systems, because the long-range missile delivery systems are in a sense a much more immediate threat to the security of the countries in the region than are uh, weapons of mass destruction, which are very unlikely uh, to be used, certainly nuclear weapons. Uh, and then to, from that to proceed to the uh, establishment of a nuclear, freeze, a nuclear weapons free zone that would include uh, Israel, uh, which I think is a crucial uh, uh, development that would be beneficial for Israel as well as for the other countries in the region because so long as there are long-range missile uh, delivery systems and uh, the possibility of other countries be developing nuclear weapons, Israel's security is very fragile. And finally, uh, if those steps could be uh, realized, then uh, some efforts at conventional arms uh, reduction uh, could be attempted. So it, it seems to me that one uh, effort of changing the policies uh, would be uh, this effort to transform the security environment of the region in, the direct, in a demilitarizing direction instead of a confrontational direction. And the second one and I think they're integral, one cannot succeed without the other, is to work toward a, uh, a genuine Israel-Palestine uh, uh, peace that really uh, involves uh, the responsibility of Washington and Tel Aviv to provide the Palestinians with a 
viable, truly sovereign state, that uh, uh, whether it's uh, possible to do that at this stage is, is itself uh, in question, but some kind of satisfaction of Palestinian self-determination uh, is indispensable for achieving peace in the region and is uh, much more important than uh, I think most people in this country uh, realize. It's a legitimate grievance that's felt deeply by the peoples of the regions, even if not always acknowledged uh, by governments that are heavily uh, dependent on U.S. Uh, strategic and economic assistance. So uh, these two kinds of initiatives basically uh, acknowledge the transition to a post-colonial world. And, and uh, that's really the uh, argument that I've been trying to put forward, uh, that this resistance to that transition is goes against the basic tides of history. It uh, is very costly economically and in terms of the legitimacy of American uh, diplomacy. Uh, and it, in the end, uh, aggravates the very problems it's seeking to uh, resolve. And that that to move on from that requires a real uh, shift in uh, focus. Having said all this, I think it's important to uh, end with uh, cautionary t uh, no uh, a cautionary note, because I think no one can uh, really uh, cope with the contradictions of the region um, with any degree of self-confidence, uh, one of the most absurd uh, statements in, along these lines was made by the former Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, when he remarked on the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, he couldn't understand why uh, Jews and Arabs couldn't sit down like good Christians and resolve their differences. Uh, the cautionary remark that I wanted to make was that because too many people have thought they had the uh, solution to these problems was made by uh, Alexander Herzen, the uh, Russian uh, 19th century writer and critic, who said, we think we are the doctors, but we are the disease. You know, the, the sense that, you, that, that there is a, a situation here uh, that uh, cannot be cured through power is really uh, I guess the subtext of what I'm saying. And finally, a, a uh, statement by uh, Napoleon who said, and I think it does bear on recent uh, act, provocative actions, he said, if they want peace, nations should avoid the pinpricks which precede cannon shots. Only they're not cannon shots now. They're very uh, destructive uh, missile attacks and uh, new kinds of wars that have no clear ending as the Afghanistan and Iraq experience suggest. Uh, so let me end there. I welcome your questions and uh, I hope that I haven't exceeded my
time and uh, that we can have some good discussion. Thank you very much. I see a question right here. This is a, a rather hypothetical question, but it's a question I've been wondering. If we do decrease pressure, lift sanctions, begin trading positively with Iran, engage leadership, pull out of Iraq two different variables, what's your opinion about the relationship between Iran and Iraq if that were to happen? Uh, that's a good question, and um, it, it's uh, difficult to give a good answer to a good question. Uh, I, I think all of the these moves uh, that have been taken and that I have been uh, discussing this evening are beset by radical uncertainty. In other words, we don't know enough to really... Uh, assess what it will be the consequences of uh, shifts of that sort. And so what we have to do is make the most responsible decisions we think we can make under the circumstances as they exist. And when you don't want, when you don't know what to do, at least you should stop the killing and the dying. And it seems to me that's a clear uh, suggestion that a, uh, a phased withdrawal from Iraq combined with a normalization of relations with Iran is the best prospect we have for a better future for those peoples and for the U.S. relationship to the region. But of course there are no guarantees. It's only the uh, sense that uh, that the uh, continued U.S. military presence is a provocation. See, I'm, I, I am taking this element that we are living, whether the U.S. government likes it or not, in a post-colonial world. And unless we make those adjustments to what that means, we will face continuing cycles of very devastating uh, diplomatic failures. Yes? You mentioned the importance of forging a new path with the new U.S. administration. Is there any presidential candidate whose Iran platform you've been impressed by? Um, I wish I could give you an enthusiastic response to that. Uh, the honest response is no. Um, I mean, some are better than others. I mean, uh, uh, Senator McCain has said, when asked if the United States would be in Iraq for 50 years, no, 100, uh, and uh, is uh, to the right of the Bush presidency on many foreign policy issues. I think uh, Senator Obama has the clearest and best record on these issues, but it's at the margins. It's, it's a little better than the others, but uh, I don't think there is the political climate yet to, to enable a mainstream political candidate uh, to 
to take a position that really would serve the national interest as well as the interests of the peoples of the region. Yes. You talked a little bit about the, the Bush administration's response to the NIE report. What has been um, Iran's response, and have they given any indication as to why they stopped the nuclear program? Was it the pressure? Was it the fact that the United States was threatening with force, or was it the diplomatic sanctions? Was it the fact they don't have the technical well, of course, uh, a government never wants to say that it's changed its policy because it's been uh, put under pressure. So, I mean, it's unrealistic to expect them to acknowledge that they abandoned the... Pro I mean, the NIE position is that they had a nuclear weapons program and then they abandoned it in 2003. And they interpret that uh, in, in, in the report itself as a result of the uh, pressures and the threats that they perceived to be associated with continuing the program. The Iranian position, as I understand it, is they never had a nuclear weapons program and they never intended. All they wanted was to do what other countries had been allowed to do under the NPT arrangements, that is to develop the entire nuclear fuel cycle, which includes uh, the capacity to reprocess uranium, which means that these countries that have the nuclear fuel cycle can, if they are so inclined, uh, develop nuclear weapons within a period ranging from uh, three to nine months, something of in that order. So all these countries that have nuclear, uh, fu nuclear fuel cycles are uh, what one might call threshold nuclear weapon states. Japan and Germany are among them. And that's been uh, accepted without, as part of what they were entitled to do under the uh, non-proliferation non treaty. So part of Iran's argument is that it's being uh, discriminated against uh, in a way that is uh, doubly unfair. On the one side, it has no nuclear weapons program. It only wants, it only is trying to do what other countries have been allowed to do. And secondly, nobody has said anything about Israel's actual acquisition of nuclear weapons uh, by covert uh, means. So it's hard to deconstruct that reality beyond, I think, what I was saying. Yes, please. You say a phase withdrawal. I wonder what you might consider the phase is. Um, just look at the, the arguments that some people say we need to set a deadline because it will make Iraq stand up and take the issue seriously versus those that say pull out the battles and collapse and all the regional players in the Yes, I mean, I mean th th that's part of the radical uncertainty uh, issue because uh, it's very difficult to assess what kinds of pressures for political reconciliation would emerge, uh, if they would emerge, uh, during a phased withdrawal process. My own sense has been that it shouldn't be too long or too short, and by that I mean uh, something on the order of a year, uh, and that it should be uh, it, sh it should be an unconditional form of withdrawal, uh, 
so as to signal a real willingness to uh, respect uh, Iraqi self-determination uh, and that it should try to engage uh, Syria and uh, Iran in a uh, stabilizing diplomacy, which my sense is they are prepared to do and would be willing to do, and was part of the recommendation of the Bush, of the uh, Baker-Hamilton Iran study group. Really what I'm saying is not that radical. It really goes very much along the lines of uh, what this bipartisan uh, study group that was really composed of quite conservative people had proposed to uh, Bush more than a year ago, and which the surge rejected as a, uh, was a policy of rejecting that. Yes, Mulisha. Very, very quick point and a, and a, and a very good question. Uh, in, 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 you should add a fifth point, I think, and it has to do with the Bush doctrine, is that the talk about, about democracy and even uh, fundamentalists coming to power was not necessarily just an, an, a naive perception. It was also the belief that uh, these were like communist uh, communist parties that essentially Islam was an ideology. And mm -hmm. eventually it would retreat uh, and eventually it would not stand its ground. So that's something you may want to investigate. Yes, no, I think, I think that's, uh, I tried to sort of uh, suggest that when I talked about oil, Islam, and uh, um, oil, Islam, and, and uh, nuclear weapons being uh, the sort of underpinnings of this uh, Bush orientation. But I think there's no question that they regarded this as a new Cold War, and that it, but a new Cold War with a different political environment because in the old Cold War you had the, you had the Soviet Union in a, in a position that it could uh, deter military approaches to uh, ideological confrontation. Here the United States in a unipolar world was not deterrable and therefore the military option, as they say, keep saying, we aren't taking the military option off the table. And it, you know, the can this goes back to your question about the candidates. None of the candidates, as far as I've been able to follow, has uh, argued, certainly uh, Senator, Hill, uh, Senator Clinton has not, uh, uh, she's r reinforced that view that uh, uh, Bush was correct in not taking the military option off the table. But as long as it's kept on the table, uh, what one might call the 1953 syndrome remains. Because it's not an there's not a symmetrical relationship here. There's a relationship with, with, between the greatest military power in history and a very vulnerable state. And if you put yourself in the position of uh, uh, Iran after the Iraq uh, after Iraq was attacked you might well think that the security of your country was dependent on having nuclear weapons uh, Iraq was pr attacked because it didn't have them not because it did and North Korea has been the beneficiary of diplomacy rather than military and because they covertly did develop uh, some nuclear weapons uh, so it, 
it, it was, it, it's a very problematic diplomacy that has been pursued in relation to non-proliferation, uh, sending a lot of wrong messages uh, that it's rather fortunate, I believe, uh, that the Iranian leadership, for whatever reason, going back to your question, for whatever reason, abandoned their nuclear weapons program as it did, because I fear that if it hadn't, by now there would have been some kind of uh, military strike. And if you've read the, some of the earlier articles that Seymour Hirsch wrote in The New Yorker, he, he at least uh, purported to have strong evidence that the Pentagon was actively planning a, a various attack scenarios. So it's not a figment of one's imagination. Yes, please. Uh, well, I've heard, I've heard that uh, uh, thesis or variations on that thesis a lot, and it, there it, there's no question that there's a this is part of the uh, the uh, surviving consciousness of acute suspicion that exists within Iran and is held by many people who believe that everything bad that happens to Iran is the consequence of outside forces. And part of that suspicion is, of course, historically vindicated by the fact that most of what's bad that's happened to Iran was the result of outside forces. But as far as I've been able to assess, the evidence for that kind of conspiratorial view of the uh, 1979 events, which included uh, the suggestion that Ayatollah Khomeini was a British agent, was actively uh, employed as a British agent, I find far-fetched. Well, it's been suggested that they were meeting the three countries uh, in Guatemala at the time, and that I don't think so. I actually have a, a sliver of insight into why he was living in France because I uh, gave a talk at the, um, I think it was called the French Club in New York City, actually in the uh, Twin Towers, in the restaurant and the roof of the Twin Towers, and I was sitting next to the uh, f uh, French ambassador, to, who had been French ambassador to Iran. And he said that he went to, when the Iran, when the Shah asked for, uh, when Khomeini asked for um, asylum in France, he went to the Shah and said, should we give him a visa to come to France? And according to him, the Shah responded, yes, please, I want him as far away from Iran as possible. And he was in Iraq at the time. And they, according to this ambassador, again, he went after three months. It was, they gave him a three-month visa. He said, shall we renew it? And he said, yes, renew it, because we don't want him coming into our region. So I don't know. I, those things are very hard to, to track down. Yes, please. In terms of you have to talk a little louder. You're so far away.
Uh, well, that's um, uh, a complicated thing again because it's it's very much linked to Turkish domestic politics. It's not only a matter of what's going on in north northern uh, Iraq and the PKK problem. It's a problem of how much influence the Turkish armed forces will have over the civilian elected leadership in Turkey and they were pushing very hard for these it's not clear that the that there is a real uh, security threat to Turkey from what's happening in northern Iraq uh, and it's probably certainly not the case uh, that the US should try to get involved in the midst of this kind of conflict. There's no question that the Kurdish issue is one of the great unresolved issues, not only in Iraq, uh, in Turkey, but also in Iran and in Syria to some extent. Uh, Turkey has the, probably the, one of the largest minorities in the world uh, that doesn't uh, have a state of its own, you know, that has been denied rights of self-determination. Yes? Your point is uh, that the that the Kurdish region is vulnerable if if there isn't some kind of security arrangement. Uh, um, yeah, well, if they aren't protected, then wouldn't they have a point in having in being in the area where they are unhappy with being part of whatever Iraq is to be built? Uh, yeah, it, it, there's no question that uh, the security of the Kurdish. Uh, uh, community there in Iraq is precarious because they're caught between uh, the rest of Iraq that's not very uh, sympathetic to their aspirations and is very eager to get hold of some of the oil in the north and the Turk Turkish uh, nationalism that still has claim territorial claims in the Kurdish region particularly in the uh, Mosul or Kirkuk area where the uh, much of the oil is situated. So I think it would requ again require some kind of regional uh, arrangement that would provide the best hope for s uh, stability. Yes, please. Do you, do you believe that the European, the various European governments are overly cooperative with the US administration now? Or are they covertly perhaps more independent than they seem and responsive to their own economic motivations? I think they're walking that kind of tightrope between the, the uh, two. Th I mean, that you have governments now in Germany and France that are much more conservative than had existed uh, uh, earlier in, in the Bush presidency. 
and particularly Sarkozy is very eager to follow a kind of American line. At the same time, the Europeans have pursued an independent economic path and would like to get a larger share of the economic opportunities in, in the region. So I think, it's, uh, I think it is, as I say, a kind of policy tightrope that they're trying to walk upon. Yes, please. You refer to American democracy promotion activities in Iran as essentially a cover for uh, supporting regime change. Um, I was wondering if you consider that just an outright or just blatant wrong policy approach to Iran at this time, or if like the way that we're doing it can be changed to make it more constructive. Well, I'm very suspicious of governments uh, spending money to uh, alter the political internal political reality of another country, and particularly the US government, given its uh, record on these things, and particularly in relation to Iran, given the history of the relationship between. It just feeds the worst kind of uh, suspicion. And I believe that if, I believe very much in the desirability of a more democratic Iran, but I believe it has to come out of domestic forces. One way of thinking about it is, how would Americans feel if Iran was promoting uh, Islamization of American society or some program that of uh, their own? It would, it would seem to be an incredible intrusion on our sovereignty and sovereign rights. And it's only because of the survival of the colonial mentality that one can think that it's okay to, pr to promote change of the elected or constitutional arrangements in a foreign country, but intolerable to have them do that to us. Yes, please. Well, the question that I will ask you will need a hypothetical answer. It would be a difficult one for, for anyone to guess, but a military attack against Iran, how would that affect, what sort of consequence would that have for the U.S. and the region? And how would that be any different than the consequences that we have seen in the attack against Iran? Well, that, of course, it, it depends on what you mean by an attack. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the general thinking is that the attack on Iran, if it were to take place, would be basically an airstrike or series of airstrikes, not an invasion. And so it wouldn't involve the occupation of a foreign country uh, that is far beyond the capabilities of the United States, even if it was so crazy as to undertake it. Also, Iran has a number of res retaliatory responses or retaliatory options that Iraq really didn't possess, uh, one of which is to uh, close the Straits of Hormuz, which they could easily block by sinking ships in the Straits, affecting uh, oil prices in a dramatic way. Uh, encouraging Hezbollah and uh, Hamas to do uh, much more 
drastic forms of uh, violent activity. They apparently have um, the, the they they have enough long-range missile capacity to uh, initiate attacks throughout the region, suicide bombers throughout the region. They could do a lot of things that would radically threaten world economic stability as well as plunge the whole region into a regional war, expand the war zone in a uh, very dangerous and unpredictable way. To just follow on that question, how do you feel that the devaluation of U.S. dollar, in, in addition to some countries questioning whether oil should be also exchanged in Europe, has an effect on the policy such as some of what we see uh, for the purpose of considering the national debt of this country that we have and how we manage the value of dollar? I think it is important. It's a uh, not widely appreciated uh, aspect of this uh, uh, situation that is emerging, but I think it is important. There, there's a study in Ireland that uh, suggested that one of the reasons for the um, uh, attack on Iraq was uh, Saddam Hussein's intention to shift the... Uh, oil accounts from the dollar to the euro. I have no way of knowing how uh, accurate that is, but uh, I think that this falling dollar and the symbolism associated with that loss of uh, currency stability for the, for the U.S. is a very serious consideration. Yes, sir. San Francisco State. Richard, thank you so much. I found your review of the history very suggestive. Thank I've you. had in the past the fortune of being on several panels and apps on IFC with you. Uh -huh. so yes, you look familiar to yes. me, yes. Here we are, and I'm very glad to, to benefit from your thoughts again. I was particularly intrigued with your thoughts on, on the, the transforming security environment. I like the idea, but I think the idea should be based or premised on some kind of understanding the legitimacy of the Iranian security inferior sort of complex in that region, and plus the fact that the Iranians have their own identities, the Persian Gulf region. Yes. They would like to kind of, uh, identity and legitimacy of Iran being sort of uh, actually uh, understood by the United States. And then I think when you said that, that you feel that there's, you have sort of some Sneaking suspicion that this administration, before it leaves the office, they may actually encounter Iran. You know, as I look at the, the Pakistani situation, and I look at some of the journalistic forecasting that are pointing to the fact that the American troops might end up going to Pakistan as opposed to Iran. I was wondering whether you can comment on that. Um. Uh, yes, I mean, I think that uh, that whole. Um uh, area is uh, filled with uh, potentialities of very uh, serious uh, developments and Pakistan is probably the most dangerous country in the world at the moment and uh, it has uh, nuclear weapons, it has extremist elements that have access to significant power, it's a large country um, I think that uh, 
the the and the U.S. thinks that the only way it can control the Afghanistan situation is to uh, have a much stronger uh, um, paramilitary presence within Pakistan, which would further destabilize uh, the situation, probably as far as the existing government is concerned. So I think there are a whole series of factors uh, that make that situation likely to produce some unpleasant surprises. What they are is hard to anticipate. And I agree with you fully that um, there has to be a ch an acceptance of Iran as a regional actor in if it is to, if it's not only an independent state, it's an important participant in a very important region. And that's why I quoted from Ali Ansari's book, which I, th I recommend very strongly. It's a very uh, good balanced uh, discussion that has uh, a lot of sensitivity to these historical developments. It's called Confronting Iran and it was published just a year ago. But I think he's one of the best uh, specialists on uh, Iran uh, that I, I have read, anyway. Yes, please. I'd like to know what uh, you think... A little bit louder? <laughs> Sorry. What do you think, uh, how do you think Russia and China view Iran, and what role are they playing in the conflict of Iran and the West? Uh, that's... Um, important uh, uh, set of issues, uh, but I know very little about them, so I can't really uh, say very much. I mean, Russia, I think, sees opportunities in Iran, and Putin has definitely uh, tried to pursue a independent a set of initiatives that are much less hostile uh, toward Iran than those pursued by the U.S. And uh, he, um, uh, uh, Bush at a press conference was asked about this and, and sort of evaded the uh, implications of the question. But uh, I think Russia and China, for that matter, China sees, is very preoccupied with arranging its energy uh, supplies, needs the uh, uh, resources, natural gas and oil that Iran possesses. So my sense is they, they are pursuing a very low-profile diplomacy uh, that aims at f filling a vacuum created if the United States uh, can persists in isolating Iran, or trying to isolate Iran. Yes, thanks. In Iraq? Well, I think withdrawal would be a first step because I think that, uh, and, and also, uh, I, of course, the U.S. from the beginning aggravated those tensions, first by uh, this total disqualification of the uh, Ba'ath Party, um, the total debathification of the governing process and military forces and police and and uh, an election process that brought to uh, power a Shia uh, dominated government that 
there, there was no easy way of creating a transition to a more ethnically balanced or religiously balanced uh, governing process. But I think one has to leave it to the Iraqis to work out, hopefully, the an accommodation. It goes back to this question of what can we hope for a politics of rec reconciliation in the context of phased American withdrawal? And I don't think anyone can give a convincing answer to that, but I believe it's worth try. It's much better to try than to persist with the present uh, policies. I think I've exhausted you all, but uh, I thank you for your patience and your question. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.